difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Christopher Nolan's breakthrough memento about a man pursuing his wife's killer, even though he's incapable of remembering what he's doing for more than about 15 minutes at a time. It was the first thing we thought of when we were watching Pixar's Finding Dory, which is also about a character with profound memory problems, trying to put together pieces from her past to find her family. Finding Dory is the sequel to 2003's Finding Nemo, one of Pixar's all-time greatest hits, and it shares a lot of Nemo's structure as well as some of its characters. In Nemo, a clownfish named Marlin, voiced by Albert Brooks, crosses the ocean looking for his kidnapped son. In Finding Dory, the focus shifts to Marlin's awkward but good-natured new fish friend Dory, who also has anterograde amnesia and can't make new memories. When a series of flashbacks reminds Dory of her missing parents, she has to cross the ocean yet again to look for them, in another big adventure full of chases, colorful characters, and a message about living with disability. My family! I remember my family! They're out there somewhere! trying to go to the to the gym of the uh, Baltic the Jewel of Morro Bay California yes no Dory California's all the way across the ocean then we better get going how come every time we're on the edge of this reef one of us is trying to leave for once can't we just enjoy the view how can you be talking about the view when I remembered my family no no we've done our ocean travels that part of our lives is over the only reason to travel in the first place is so you don't have to travel ever again So starting with the obvious, what did you guys think of Finding Dory? Did it compare to Finding Nemo? And most importantly, did you cry? It's all right. I didn't cry, which which oh. which kind of makes me cry. Because you didn't cry. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it might be the first Pixar movie that I haven't cried at. I haven't seen the Cars movies, but yeah. like even, a good dinosaur even for you. The, the good dinosaur got, it got a couple tears out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I believe I'm on this podcast uh, saying that it, it made me a little misty. <laughs> but uh, this, yeah. And I think part of it is, I, I, I love Finding Nemo. It's not my favorite Pixar, but it, it's definitely up there. But I was never a huge Dory fan to begin with. So I, I was always approaching this sequel with a little bit of trepidation for that reason. And this movie did make me care about Dory. So in that aspect, it was a success. And I, I mean, it's it's good. It's a good Pixar. It's solid, like, tier two Pixar for me, you know, but... But um, not two tiers. Pixar. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's <laughs> zero tier, second tier <laughs> Pixar. <laughs> and honestly, like, because going into this, I'm like, okay, well, even if, you know, the story doesn't do it for me, it's going to be beautiful, like, because Finding Nemo was beautiful. And I mean, it looked really good, but there wasn't that moment that like even how with the with the good dinosaur was like wow this is like kind of incredible like it looked very similar to finding nemo and there wasn't a lot of interesting stuff going on visually for me there with one like kind of minor exception which we can talk about i mean you know what was going what was interesting visually was uh piper 
<laughs> the the short film that ha- that uh, was yeah. before yeah. the movie, which is a total delight and had those hyper-realistic images where you're like, wow, this is just the next front in animation. But you're right. I, the, the look of the film, I guess maybe for continuity's sake, perhaps, uh, it looks a lot like... Finding Nemo, and it and really the it the film like period Nemo. feels like <laughs> Finding Nemo again. It's like we're crossing the ocean, and you know, there's a lot of um, misadventures and 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 laughs, and it, I mean, it's fine, but it is a retread, you know, and that was disappointing. I think in terms of the crying factor, maybe the bit with the shells, all the shells that uh, Dory's parents have been yeah. studiously laying out. Uh, for however long I can't say all these years it's not all these years is it how long do these fish live anyway <laughs> you know that that actually raises a question that really lingered for me which is there is a very specific reason very well told at the beginning of Finding Nemo why Marlon has one child and no more children and no wife I'm really kind of bugged by the idea that Dory's parents had one kid and like never had any more kids and like lived their life waiting for this one kid to come back. They're fish. Come on. Yeah, but also they have eyelids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I, it's weird. Funny Nemo I like a lot. But it, it was always kind of second tier mm-hmm. uh, Pixar to me, and revisiting it kind of confirmed that for me. I mean, I, I do really like the film, but but it's never been my, my favorite Pixar film. Um, but I do like Dory a lot. I mean, I, I the character. I think it's like really one of the great pairings of character design and voice. I think Ellen DeGeneres is delightful as that character. Um, I didn't necessarily want a whole movie about her, but I assumed that they had a really great different kind of story to tell when this movie was announced. And it's all right. (laughs) I I mean, I think, you know, and this, I'm certainly not the first person to make this point, Tasha. You you even kind of mentioned it at the beginning there. But I do think it's interesting that it is telling a story about living with a disability. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And that is something different and kind of, I guess, a little groundbreaking for for Pixar. So, and I, I do think it handled it in a pretty good way. And going back to like my dislike of Dory or my, my not love of Dory is um, in finding Nemo, she was very much kind of like a one joke character, you know, like she didn't remember what happened three seconds ago. Mm -hmm. And finding Dory uses that one joke a lot in the beginning. And when it starts to get away from that joke and like, she does start to recover her memories. I found myself liking it a lot more, but you know, it still uses that one joke a lot. I think I think um, the best parts of the movie are Dory's parents. So Eugene, I mean, I felt like we were seeing something a little different from the first film there with Eugene Levy and Diane Keaton as as her parents, and and the whole nervousness of of the the scene where they kind of despair as to whether or not she'll ever be able to live in the world with mm-hmm. her condition. And it's that that's the closest it came to really getting me, um, but didn't quite get me. Either. <laughs> I mean, I would think as a parent that would kind of touch you guys a little more just because there's such a visible discrepancy between the faces that they present to her mm-hmm. the like relentlessly upbeat hopeful you can do this it's going to be okay faces versus how they talk in private about their concern about whether their special needs child is ever going to have a functional life you know actually now that you just mentioned it I would love a film that isn't about finding anybody. That's actually that is about that relationship. Wouldn't it be cool if you if we just made a film about Dory and her parents and, and the, hang in and, with Dory? Well, just or just any. I mean, you can find some sort of plot around it. And I'm again, this is it's, it's out of line for me to talk to filmmakers about what they should do. But uh, yeah, but, the, but those that. are the most. Scott. Sorry, <laughs> you I'm not doing do it. that. I'm not doing that right now. Let's but I am saying, but, but, but I think you are locating a more proper emotional 
you know, center or anchor to this film, which which has to do with Dory and her parents. I mean, that that was the moment with the shells that kind of got to me. It's like that, you know, and those were like little achievements too they could be happy about or proud proud of dory for making those connections is to be you know the shells are part of it and just being able to recognize that's how you get home is that you follow these follow these shells and that's a breakthrough when they get through with her so when you get get to that theme of disability i mean that's a very uh, i think quite beautiful illumination of that theme the thing about the shells i mean the shells was the one place in the movie where i also choked up and I think it's because it does that thing that I've always said is like Pixar's signature is what it does best is find an emotional moment and hold on it and let it sink in and let the audience marinate in it and feel what it is. I mean, it's the trash compactor in Toy Story 3 where they all think they're going to die. It's the moment in The Incredibles when uh, Mr. Incredible thinks his family is dead. Pixar has a, a way of like lingering in these moments. And the Finding Dory moment isn't that kind of moment of like violence or sadness. It's a moment of like growing hope and realization. But it's a silent moment where the audience is allowed to understand what's going on and draw their own conclusions. And that's what made it an emotional moment for me. Kind of pivoting off of that idea of like holding on a moment, this is a little different, but it goes into what I alluded to earlier about like one interesting visual thing I think this movie does, which is kind of playing with the murkiness mm-hmm. of water. Absolutely. And, and there are a couple of really interesting shots where she's just looking out into cloudy green nothingness you know or or the kelp scene you know and like that is haunting in a way especially in the context of being lost of, of being lost mentally you know as well as physically um so visually speaking those were the parts that stood out most to me and it kind of does use that same tactic of kind of holding on this moment of not necessarily discomfort but you know an, an emotional response Yeah, there were some really conscious decisions made in this film about how to handle water. Like immediately after I watched it, I went back and rewatched Finding Nemo. And I had forgotten how complicated the water is in that film. Like there are perpetually like these little floating specks of, you know, impurity or like just little fragments of who knows what floating through the water. And the water is very, very textured in a way that, you know, when you're looking for it, you... (laughs) probably can't help but think this must have been really complicated to animate. They made a lot of choices here. But it's a very different thing from the Merc in in Finding Dory, which looks less show-offy and like less visually obvious, but possibly was more complicated to do because they're playing like uh playing with opacity mm-hmm. in complicated CGI animation, I am given to understand is a really, really complicated thing. And the thing. light, the way the mm-hmm. light works in that. I mean, that's the thing with Pixar. It's like, what's the rendering time on this on this movie? Uh, on like when uh, you know Toy Story, where the uh, there was like you know they were talking about how long it took for that whole for those images to process. And I think they they really do want to try to push the envelope visually. Um, and uh, it's it's good that you mentioned you know how subtly they do it here because even like like I said the 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 short beforehand was a little more obviously wowing in terms of you know pushing the photorealistic limits of uh, what computer animation can do. At the same time, I had the same reaction Genevieve did. Watching this movie, there was nothing that, that visually stood out for me in terms of, you know, wow, that's, that's really incredible that they were able to do that. And so I went looking uh, after the fact, like online to see, like, was there, was there something that they're particularly proud of here? Was there a big breakthrough? And the breakthrough was in the rendering time. You know, <laughs> they, the, the big 
breakthroughs on this film are all like technological behind the scenes, new versions of their, their suites. And they've got like a whole new suite for handling light that lets them handle like complicated direct and indirect light sources in a completely different way that vastly reduces the rendering time, which is great for them, but means we don't, we don't watch the film and think, oh my God, Sully's fur. That's the most amazing thing. Oh my God, the water in the, in the good dinosaur. Like I don't, didn't see anything that show offy here. And apparently Hank's tentacles, Hank the octopus, who has seven tentacles and therefore is a septopus, uh, was the most complicated character they've ever done. But on screen, it's a technological thing. Like on screen, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh my God, that those tentacles. I was just thinking, hey, look at the funny octopus doing octopus things. I like the octopus. Octopus is good. Yeah. What do you uh, like about the octopus? I don't know. Was, like like Dory, I felt like the, the appearance of uh, the character matched the personality, and, and it was Ed O'Neill was really good as as uh, that, and, and uh, you know, I, it, it worked for me. I, I I felt myself distracted by the fact that Hank was so obviously a necessity, and like him being an octopus was a necessity in the, the story, which finding Dory ta- much more of it takes place in the human world. A, a big part of it is in this. A sea life rehabilitation center slash aquarium. It's sort of a fantasy sea world, like what sea world ought to be, which yeah. is you know you know really well. Really it started kind out responsible. It started out in the story as Sea World, and right. then the animators watched Blackfish and said, "Oh, we can't do that." Yeah. So they turned it into this yeah. weird fantasy. But, but I mean, there's a fair amount of this movie where fish are navigating spaces where fish can't survive and they need an octopus who, who can carry them around in a bucket of water or something. Oh, man, and, that drove me crazy. Or yeah. a bird. Yeah, or a bird, or a bird. And like I, I, I like that part of the movie at the Seaquarium more than I, I like everything else just because it was something different and, and like I liked kind of navigating that different space. But I was very distracted by the mechanics of it, like how you move these characters through this space. Like, oh, there are pipes, you know, and oh, uh, they can talk to each other through the pipes. You know, it, it, it felt a little forced, but at the same time, I enjoyed exploring that space. I never want to be like the nitpicky types. Like the, yeah. <laughs> the comic book artist John Byrne, Who's who's kind of in some ways a ridiculous internet presence who who gripes about everything, uh, but I remember posted his where he complained about cars because why would a world of anthropomorphic cars have door handles? Uh, and like it's like just just you know, let it go. But at the same time, I did find myself constantly distracted in a way I was not distracted in Finding Nemo by why would an octopus read be able to read that? Why would a fish know how to how to steer a car? You know, this is why, why would a fish know the difference between septa and octo uh, prefixes, especially <laughs> if that fish can't make new memories? Uh. Yeah, it just pushed it pushed credulity. Oh, here, here's, the thing that, here's the thing yeah, that got I, I, me: yeah. seawater to freshwater. <laughs> There's like how much time does 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 Dory spend in freshwater? It's like you are not going to survive. Then you are see you are you need the salt. That Wait. is a valid point, Scott Tobias. Wait, I, I find myself suddenly reviewing every moment of the movie. I mean, she jumps from yeah. aquarium oh, to yeah. aquarium. When he when he ladles her out into the coffee pot, he just takes some of no, her aquarium water. water. Oh, yeah, just water. Like you know, no, no, but that's old, but it's from water. the aquarium. It's no, not no, like there's, tap there's, water. There's, there's 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 tap water in this thing. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> At one point, doesn't she end up in a, in a dirty like a janitor mop? Water right, exactly. She's in a yeah. she's in a janitor's uh, mop bucket. That's not seawater. Wow, you guys unless are paying pretty, more attention than I was. So, yeah, you know what? Why <laughs> would they need more handles? Wait, wait, wait. Think about it. Unless- 
says he's an incompetent janitor and he's just walking around with a bucket of seawater. <laughs> Sorry, I need a moment to completely lose it over that. What what exactly does the incompetent janitor just like dipping buckets of water out of the sea or is he like dumping entire aquariums into it? what what is the scenario where the incompetent janitor has seawater in his bucket? No, that's 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 really perfect. No, it didn't occur to me at all. See, that made you cry. <laughs> Seriously, I'm tearing up here. Well, I mean, I think that it, I, I mean, he, maybe he's just dipping. Right, the seawater is right there. <laughs> you have probably has to walk to a sink. Uh, and apparently, those whales water. can just jump out of their tanks at any time. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, really. Is there a lot of tank to tank action in the <laughs> aquariums? Like... Never cross the tanks. I mean, there is for octopi or octopuses. I know octopi. You know, I can I just say it doesn't really matter whether you say octopuses or octopi. Somebody on the internet will get super mad at you. It, it doesn't matter which you use. Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna you're you're gonna be a target either way. This is called squids. I did uh, like the squid, the, mm. the the squid chase, which is very obvious retread of the shark sequence and Finding Nemo, except that we didn't actually get to meet and talk to the squid at the end. But I I did think that was. It's a thrilling chase sequence and a, a, a nice reveal of that menace. And it paid honor. It paid. Uh, it honored my all my favorite animal, which is the sea otter. The sea oh. otter gets a really sea otters get get to use their adorableness yes. uh, for for good. Okay, while we're uh, while we're nitpicking here, mm-hmm. did any of you guys read uh, David Chen's piece over at Hi David? We're talking about you again. <laughs> David Chen's piece over at Slash Film about the the dichotomy in this film between speaking and non speaking characters. Like, did it bug you at all that like Becky the loon is like laughed at and mocked, and like Gerald the sea lion is laughed at and mocked, and they're both these like kind of derpy characters who don't seem to all be mentally there. Like he, he he made a very interesting point that, you know, this film is so sensitive about Dory's disability and how she functions in the world. And yet it kind of turns around and like makes fun of these characters who like look different and are being like mocked at and laughed. I thought it was a really interesting point. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I, sea um, lions are known to be a little dim. Well, they're also known to be jerks. I mean, yeah, the, jerks. The, the two jerk sea lions in this are, are very <laughs> that was, that which, was which, a, That was a running was a, joke that scored every yeah. time for me. And, and that, that was our, our wire reunion. Too of Dominic West mm-hmm. and Idris Elba. <laughs> Idris Elba were the the two sea lions. Really, I, it's funny the things that you're. The, all right, some deep part of me like resents whenever we talk about a lesser Pixar movie as though it it's a humongous disappointment because you know they've brought they've done so many wonderful things they've brought so much joy into our lives and when yeah. they come along with one of their B movies like I want to be supportive I want to not be that person who's like how dare you entertain me less than you've entertained me in the past. But at the same time, when I find myself distracted by stuff like those two sea lions and how much they reminded me of the mine, mine, mine seagulls or the squid thing and how much it reminded me of the the shark chase, uh, I don't know, some little part of me dies because I, I would rather be the person who watches this movie with like joy and wonder. Regarding any Pixar, I would rather watch this than almost everything else that's going to come out uh, for kids animated wise this year. So well, we, we saw a trailer for this like film that. called uh, Monster Trucks, Scott. Oh, the, that the, was good. The, what the, about Storks? Yeah, Storks. Yeah, yeah. So, so, the, so we can at least say that about Pixar, which is even their B efforts, which I think we all agree. This it's is. like pizza. Yeah. Even when it's bad, it's good. 
I've had some really incredibly bad pizza. <laughs> like I've had pizza that. Would you say that, it was the Cars Two of pizza? <laughs> I would say it's the like Planes Fire and Rescue of pizza. <laughs> is what I would say. <sighs> it's okay, actually the sorry. first film I took my daughter to because I figured, you know, I wasn't sure she was going to behave or not. I figured this is a low stakes. If I if I walk out of Planes Fire and Rescue, what have I really lost? You know. And did she turn to you and say, "Father, why didn't you take me to one of the A list Pixar's instead?" <laughs> well, while we're talking about the the various nitpicky objections we had, uh, Scott, we can transition into your topic. I believe you had something to say about the the way internal logic works in both this and Memento. Yes, uh, you know, pairing Memento with Finding Dory wound up highlighting one of Finding Dory's biggest flaws to me, which is the failure to honor its own internal logic. Uh, Memento may pile gimmicks on top of gimmicks between its anterior-grade amnesia and its crisscross chronologies, but Christopher Nolan is rigorous about dotting every I and and crossing every T. Finding Dory uh, besets Dory with a similar condition, but whenever the film writes itself into a corner, Dory reco- always recovers some scrap of memory or, or intuition that gets the film out of it. And some of that is part of the film's emotional ballast. I mean, if we're to take Finding Dory as an allegory about a special needs child, then we can see as progress her ability to hold on to memories uh, that she by nature would forget. Uh, but it's frustrating to watch this narrative lurch forward again and again and again out of convenient moments of lucidity on her part. So that's a really fundamental problem. And I think that's why I think Dory is so, so much more effective as a supporting character than as a, as a main character, because uh, to have something centered around her really is constantly putting the writers in a position where they're going to have to figure out how to get her out of scrapes. And I don't think they find elegant solutions for that as often as they should. I feel like both films cheat a little bit on the exact ways in which the memory condition works. Mm. Memento cheats a little bit in exactly how long it takes him to reset. And Nolan's made it clear that it's because if he's focusing on something, he can maintain attention longer. If uh, he's in the middle of something particularly intense, he can maintain attention longer. But by and large, my understanding from his description is that it's supposed to, an individual segment is supposed to take about 15 minutes. The movie segments take about five. So you're already cheating a little bit there. And then, you know, he... That's a very, I think that's a pretty minor. Oh, yeah. It's certainly well, yeah. a minor cheat. But mm. in in the same way, I think Finding Dory like messes a little bit with exactly what she can remember and when. The one defense I have for that is that it's actually consistent with Finding Nemo. That was one of the things that surprised me most about going back and rewatching Nemo Mm -hmm. was she also has the same kind of like abrupt triggered flashbacks where she does apparently store all of these memories and can access them when she sees the right kind of thing or the right kind of conditions, conditions happen. So... Yes, I think it's cheaty. I think it's at least a semi-consistent cheat. But I, I mean, I agree with your objection. I mentioned this in the first part, the line about Dory's inability to form new memories, kind of giving her a strange power to move through life. With a, are, are any of you familiar with the term reckless optimism? It's basically the idea that like optimism is not grounded in belief that you'll achieve a desired outcome. It's a determination to reevaluate the situation on a moment-to-moment basis and acknowledge the possibilities inherent in that moment. And I think Dory's ability to kind of move through life and get out of scrapes kind of is an extension of that idea. And I do know people <laughs> that do seem to kind of succeed despite themselves throughout throughout life. And I find 
story to be kind of in line with that sort of person. And it and they do tend to have the best stories and do have the most adventures. It's not something that I understand in my own life and the way I move through the world, but I kind of get it in relation to Dory. Does any of that make sense? No. no. There's a weird thread throughout the movie that's specifically about Dory's anxiety. And I feel like the film is very conscious about how it's dealing with her memory loss as as a handicap and how other people relate to her as a handicapped character by resenting her and judging her and expecting them to live up to their ability and then coming around on on the fact that, you know, she is who she is and that's fine. But what interested me more and what I think is in a way like more applicable is that she's a really anxious character and that when she gets upset about her own disability is when she gets more anxious and then creates this anxiety spiral. And it kind of seems ironic to me that so much of that what would Dory do kind of idea is just is all about like, let's ignore any thoughts we have about this problem. Let's ignore any fears we have about this problem and just charge recklessly forward at the first thing that we see. Like some part of that just felt very anti-intellectual to me in a way I found a little disturbing. Yeah. I guess. But it's also as someone who is an anxious person and who does overanalyze as as a Marlin, basically, <laughs> I, I do respond to the romance of that notion of, of being able to just barrel through life, come hell or high water. Live in the moment. Yeah. As you say, when Dory is not doing that is when she when her disability kind of overcomes her and she falls victim to it. Keith, it occurs to me that this looks like a really good way to transition into your topic, which is memory and identity. I mean, both of these are characters who are very much defined by their memory losses. What do you think these films say about identity? I think there's kind of a terrifying notion at the bottom of both films, especially Memento, but I think it's implied in, in Finding Dory that without our memories, we really have no identity. And both Leonard and Dory kind of desperately cling to and, and try to restore what they have of their their lives, you know, in various ways, either either atone for a past misdeed in the case of Finding Nemo or, or in Dory trying to rest- return herself to the family that gave her her identity as well. I mean, in some ways, Dory illustrates it just as well as, as Memento in, in those opening segments where she's just kind of drifting off and drifting, physically drifting further and further from her parents, but also becoming, having less and less a sense of who she is. There's kind of a sense that she's moved from situation to situation. The only thing that kind of restores her sense of self is when she meets Marlon and, and, and it's kind of taken in as a, another member of their family. And as the film opens here, she's almost like, in some ways, like the family pet, you know, who gets up and, and must be taken care of. Uh, guys, <laughs> is there do, any particular reason you can especially relate to that? It's up at 5.15 reliably every morning, <laughs> demands to be taken out, uh, barks at you. Oh, I know. That's getting too autobiographical here. Um, you, know, you know, Leonard is is interesting in, in that he tasks himself with keeping this sort of skeleton of, of his personality and of his past alive, even if it means some, in some ways lying to himself about who he was because he you know, he has to sculpt out a new sense of, of who he needs to be. There's a part when he's talking about Sammy Jenkins and really talking about himself where, where he describes the wife's uh, trying to decide, you know, she needs to know that, that the old him is, is totally gone and maybe she can love this, this new Sammy. But is there, I mean, is there even anyone one there? If, if, if you have no ability to, 
retain any any sort of sense of what's going on what who who are you at that point i think that's a really interesting question that that both films raise in, in different ways you know watching memento and the more we talked about it, i really am, am glad we paired these movies together even though they don't necessarily immediately feel like they belong together yeah i mean as far as how memory gives these characters a sense of self maybe that's kind of a missing element in finding dory or maybe an advantage that memento has uh, since he has opposable thumbs uh to be able to create this <laughs> system and and um be able to create himself on this on the spot you know he's not he's not just living in the moment like like dory and just sort of uh following into intuition he's got a system and so that, that kind of separates the two characters uh and i think there's also something much more fundamental to dory there's a fundamental decency and helpfulness and in spirit um that, that that is with her no matter what she forgets i mean she is uh, so i think she does have a pretty s- strong identity or personality you know without needing to create it or to to have these memories that inform it in any way Andrew Stanton's talked about how, like, one of the kind of defining things about Dory is that she's created that helpful, upbeat, open personality for herself as a response to her condition Mm. because it helps her make friends quickly and it helps her deal with what can be a very depressing life. I mean, she's kind of gone through her life. On this quest, we see her over and over trying to trying to ask strangers for help in getting back to she doesn't know where to recover something that she doesn't know what she's lost. And if she hadn't invented this personality for herself, like her life would be pretty dire. It, it reminds me of what we were talking about mm-hmm. with, with Leonard and, and how he does have this sort of likable, approachable personality that is a bit of a, of a put on in order to... Uh, interact with people and move through life. Yeah, the glimmer of recognition. Yeah, yeah. and but even beyond that, he's he's a self-made, like he's a self-created being. Mm-hmm. He's put all of these elements into his life specifically to shape who he's going to be, because he knows that he's not going to be able to form his own identity in the moment. So he's got to form his own identity for the next moment and the next moment down the line. I have, I have a related question: Who is lettered after the after the? movie ends after the after the narrative ends here because he's revealed to himself that or tricked himself into believing he's accomplished what he needs to do where, where does leonard go now i mean that's a really good question he again that whole idea of this movie having some very blatant moments that might not play in a, a movie that wasn't structured this way he says uh, several times that he like he needs a system he needs a function he needs a purpose he needs it doesn't matter whether he remembers taking vengeance all that matters is that it happens he has all of these principles that he lives by and they're all kind of tied to the idea of giving himself a quest to give himself an identity mm-hmm. you know given that he's setting out to get the tattoo on his chest that says i did it I don't know who he is. And I think that that's the reason that the story ends where it ends. Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't want to speculate. It's outside the scope of the movie. But I did find myself thinking, well, what happens to this guy next? I mean, if you have, has anybody else read the, uh, the Jonathan Nolan short story? Mm-hmm, no. Like it's, it's pretty dire. I mean, it's the character pretty much sitting in a hospital room, like reading all of these notes to himself. There's not a whole lot to his life. And the story spells out, you know, you can't hold a job. You can't make friends. You can't have a relationship. You can't have children. Like there's not a whole lot going for him. There's not a whole lot to keep him moving forward. In that way, I find Finding Dory a little depressing in part because 
you know, in Finding Nemo, she says to Marlin, you're my home now. I remember better when I'm around you. Mm. I feel comfortable when I'm around you. And then at the beginning of Finding Dory, she just kind of dumps that out the window. Mm. You know, she's got this this relationship that is defining her identity. And then she remembers another one and she kind of goes, yeah, see ya. I got, I, got, I got people I barely remember somewhere else. <laughs> I got to be with them. Uh, you don't have a movie without that, though. You know? yeah, well, and our past is part of our identity, and that is something that Memento plays very heavily on with his with his wife and, and their attack and how he got his condition to begin with. You know, it, it's and it's significant that the only thing he can remember is the past, and that is what informs his present. You know, like what he is doing is all because of something that happened in the past. And with with Finding Dory, it's a search for roots, I guess, a search for what made you the way you are. And in this case, that's her parents. I mean, I buy that. I mean, it's not that I don't buy it. I, I do think that a more powerful motivator for me than I have to get back to my parents is that she's like well aware that they loved her and that they will be terribly, terribly worried about her. Yeah. And like that to me is to the degree that this film has an emotional hook, it's there. And to the degree that that Memento feels lost and lonely, it's because somewhere in his heart he wants to go back. Well, very blatantly, he wants to go back to this relationship that defined him and that he can't go back to. Although you talk about what he can remember is the past, so much of what we see about him remembering the past isn't real. Yeah. That it kind of makes me question some of the other stuff. Like his, again, he he tells Natalie, you know, this memories that he has of his wife are kind of like what defines him. And I can't help but wonder how real they are, too, and whether they're also a fantasy. I find that quick shot of him in bed with his wife with I've done it tattooed on his chest really poignant because this is total fantasy but but at the same time you know this is this is all he has and doesn't even really have it well that kind of ties into my topic yeah, which is <laughs> mystery what interests me most i think about these two films is the way they unfold in ways that only reveal what the audience needs to know as we need to know it. They're both stories that unfold, one of them backward in time, one of them forward in time, but both of them just function from reveal to reveal to reveal. Scott, I think you're entirely right in that the reveals in Finding Dory are a little cheaty and a little gimmicky, but I still think it's interesting how we get one piece of the puzzle at the time. We don't know what separated Dory from her family. We just know that it happened, and we only get that piece as it comes together. I, as much as Finding Dory cheats a little around her memories, I actually think it's really interesting how it's structured around physical items, physical objects, places, the kinesthetics of places, the like the smells and the sights and the sounds of the world. Mm-hmm. It uses all of these things to remind her of like who she is and where she's come from. And it, <laughs> I said in my review for The Verge, it explains mysteries that nobody was really waiting to be explained, like why she thinks she can speak whale and where she got her little song from. <laughs> And I, like I, I didn't necessarily need those gaps filled in, but it is interesting to see how both of these movies kind of function as puzzles, putting together pieces that you didn't even necessarily know were missing until you're handed the puzzles. I think Memento is vastly superior in that way in that there are so many more puzzles and in the way they're so much more relatable, but they're also almost more puzzle pieces than you need to form a complete picture. 
Memento becomes not just about the mysteries that are solved, but the mysteries that are are muddled and confused by the extra pieces. And you have to figure out what pieces to discard to get a complete picture. What you're saying about Finding Dory almost makes me want to walk back ever so slightly what I was saying about the internal logic of oh, good. Finding Dory because there, uh, you, you didn't like I just I like saying. it when you admit you're wrong. I'm not going to say I'm wrong about the film cheating its way out of, out of corners that it's written itself into. But what you're saying about the puzzle that is Dory's life and, and the, the, how those pieces are laid out, that's that's a whole other story and something I, I, I kind of regret not mentioning and uh, something that works a little bit better for me than, than uh, you know, other, you know, scraps uh, that help her on her way. Well, I guess then here's a question for all of you. I, I think it's inevitable as you're watching Memento that you're going to constantly be thinking, what does that mean? Where did that come from? Why did he do this? Did any of you have that kind of curiosity with Finding Dory where well, you, you wanted to know what the pieces were missing? No. I mean, I was I, – I, I do think this, the stuff with her parents is the best the best stuff in the movie, but it wasn't necessarily like – I need, to, I need to satisfy some sort of need to to find out what happened by seeing these scenes. And do we – here's the thing for me, I guess. I feel like with Finding Dory and with other like Pixar films that don't fully satisfy us, it, it may mostly come down to just an emotional letdown. And I kind of feel like our intellects struggle to catch up and we look for like all of these like weird little nitpicky reasons that that the film doesn't work for us. But I think in the end, it's just kind of an emotional letdown. And I feel like here the emotional letdown is the the draw of her quest just, you know, there there is a terror in a father who's lost his child, much less a father who's lost his handicapped child, uh, who is the only child surviving of his family. I just never felt that kind of pull with Finding Dory. And I wonder if the the real problem with the movie is that it's just it doesn't emotionally draw us along either to unpack its mysteries or to hit its conclusion. Well, I mean, one of the the big problems is that it's a retread. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what is the quest are the same? I mean, you you have uh, you know a single you know, parent parents with one child. Well, or it's a quest in reverse. It's a quest in reverse, right? So so uh, I mean, you could you could say that's an echo, but uh, if you want to be generous about it, but um, it's like Memento. It's the backward part, and Finding Nemo's the forward part. <laughs> We could, It'd be we great could. if it were like one movie. No, it wouldn't be great if there were one movie going one going one way and the other way and passing in the middle somehow. But yeah, but but I mean, just the way that they're, they're lost. I mean, Nemo gets caught in the drop off with the drop off, and then uh, Dory gets caught in the undertow, and it's like, uh, why am I watching the same movie uh, a second time? <laughs> Genevieve, you you walked right up to the edge of your topic, which yeah. is specifically structure, and then we we fell off the drop off. Yeah, and didn't quite get back to it. Uh-huh. Yeah, we. I'll keep this brief because we've talked about uh, a lot of what I wanted to bring up and talk about structure but in true Finding Dory fashion I have held back some important pieces of information <laughs> which I'm going to share with you now. We've talked a lot about memento structure being kind of one of its defining features but I want to highlight some interesting structural stuff that's going on in Finding Dory. There's a little mini interview with Andrew Stanton on io9 titled How Finding Dory Learned from the Mistakes of Finding Nemo. And it talks about how Stan ended up reworking his original version of Finding Nemo, which originally kept that opening moment where Marlon loses his family until the end of the movie and revealed it in flashback. It was moved to the beginning of the movie fairly late in Nemo's production, and Stan says that he came away from that experience with the mantra of never tell flashbacks if you don't have to. 
which is interesting in the case of Finding Dory, (laughs) which is arguably very reliant on flashback. But as this article points out, these moments from the past that we experience throughout the film aren't really traditional flashbacks because Dory is remembering them for the first time, effectively experiencing them in the present. We're not being denied information for the sake of the narrative. The revelation of the information is part of the narrative. And that aspect of the structure in particular struck me as very similar to Memento, this idea of the protagonist remembering something is effectively them and by extension us experiencing it for the first time. Are I mean, we've talked about how these moments are flashbacks, but does that explanation hold any water for you guys? I'm sorry. I'm still reeling from the idea of not knowing what happened to Marlon's family till the end of the movie. Yeah. That would yeah, have been uh, such a different film. Yeah. They, uh, apparently, the the reason they didn't wa- want it at the beginning is it was just too heavy, of a, too emotional of a beginning, which, <laughs> you know, considering Up, you know, is, is, is funny. But this was obviously before Up. But they realized that Marlon's, you know, extreme anxiety and fear wasn't really fully explicable without that moment. So. Sure. And just the idea of like coming along after that entire movie and saying, oh, and by the way, he really loves his son for reasons like, I don't know, after an hour and a half of that movie, you don't really need proof that he loves his son. Like you don't really need that incident. I think it could have worked, though. I think I think if anything, it would have been heavier to, to spread it out over the film like that. But anyway, this idea that the flashbacks in Finding Dory aren't really flashbacks. They are events or being experienced in the present. What do you guys think of that? Sophistry, I say. Sophistry! Is it just, is it just Stanton kind of uh, backing away from his, the, the rule that he set for himself and then well, apparently broke? I mean, we were talking earlier about how like it's, it's the same movie in reverse. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with deciding that the first movie we're not going to do flashbacks and in the second movie we're going to go all flashbacks. I think denying that an adult re-experiencing events from her childhood is a flashback like yeah sophistry i I mean i guess when i think of flashbacks i think of someone looking into the distance and remembering something in in the story kind of pausing just for them to remember that and that's not really what's happening here like the memory is the event It, it is happening in the present and the the reclamation of that memory is a plot point the the memory itself isn't necessarily the plot point it's a very fine distinction but i think in comparing this to memento which is very strongly tied to this idea of experiencing memory in the present it's an interesting way to look at those flashbacks or not flashbacks is it though I mean, is it an interesting way of looking at it? It like you're the one who picked this pairing, Tasha. Yeah, but you're the one who picked this topic, and more importantly, Stanton is the one that's trying to draw this particular line in the sand. I don't know. To me, this goes back to all of the feedback we had in segment one about pop star and its particular brand of humor and what it's allowed to do and what it's not, and uh, like the particular direction it's doing. And to me, it's like, does it matter if it's a flashback or not? It, like the real question is, does it work? I'm still picking my pieces of my brain off the floor, so I don't have any, any opinion on it. I just feel bad from Josh for Ohio. <laughs> oh, poor Josh from Ohio. Well, <laughs> Memento is available on Blu-ray in the 10th anniversary format and in a box set of Christopher Nolan films, but we're surprised to find out it isn't on any of the major streaming services. Sorry to put you guys out. 
It honestly had not occurred to us that such a celebrated film would not be available in every format imaginable. Finding Dory is currently in theaters, and it's likely to be around for a while after enjoying the biggest opening day and weekend for an animated feature ever. Uh, Much like Finding Nemo, which is still Pixar's all-time second highest box office earner ever, uh, we may just not be in the exactly the right boat for this one. Um, By now, you should probably be able to find some relatively uncrowded theaters if you feel more of a pull to catch it. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I just wanted to give a quick recommendation for Suited, which is a new HBO documentary directed by Jason Benjamin and co-produced by Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor of Girls fame. Um, It's ostensibly a profile of a custom suit company in Brooklyn called Bindle and Keep, but that's really just a framing device used to introduce Suited's real subjects, who are a handful of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals who have trouble finding clothing that reflects their true selves. It's a short, well-constructed documentary that uses as its guiding principle the idea that everyone who comes in for a fitting at this tailor has a story that brought them to that place, and it uses that fitting as a jumping-off point to tell this collection of personal stories about these people. Um, I'm a big fan of fashion documentaries, which is why I was drawn to this film in the first place, but the fashion angle is really secondary to this sort of larger question of the ways we communicate how we want to be perceived by the world and how that specifically applies to the transgender and gender nonconforming community. Uh, It's an easy breezy watch. It doesn't have much of a critical viewpoint per se, but it's really touching engaging as a sort of anthology of these personal stories. Uh, It debuted on HBO on June 20th. It should be rerunning uh, in the near future and available on HBO's various streaming platforms. So suited. Check it out. Very cool. Scott? So the Music Rocks Theater here in Chicago has been running a mini Brian De Palma retrospective, and I've been seeing as many movies as I can from it. But I wanted to recommend Phantom of the Paradise for those who haven't seen it. Uh, Seeing it after uh, the documentary De Palma, which I recommended last week, I was struck by how much Phantom of the Paradise reflects De Palma's attitude about trying to make art in a business that distorts or destroys it. Uh, There's no more powerful scene in his films to me than Winslow Leach, uh, the hero played by... William Finley, you know, rolling a piano into a club and performing the title song for a cantata that he's written called Faust. For a few minutes, we see him completely lost in the ecstasy of pure artistic expression while Swan, the diabolical record producer played by Paul Williams, makes plans for it in the darkness. Fan of the Paradise then becomes this wild, grotesque cult musical about seeing Winslow's art and his face thoroughly ground up by the system. Uh, he keeps on fighting, though, and uh, so does Brian De Palma. So. Phantom of the Paradise is uh, it's a bat poop crazy movie. It's so good. It's though. a lot of fun. It, it really is. I, it's it, it's. Uh, I mean, I you know, I'm happy that, that that Rocky Horror is what Rocky Horror is, but uh, I, it would have been something if in an alternate universe, if Phantom of the Paradise had been that a phenomenon of that kind because it really deserves that kind of following, which it has in Canada. Yeah, the city in Canada? Win- Winnipeg. Winnipeg, yeah. So the alternate universe is actually Winnipeg. Winnipeg, yeah. yeah. They love it there. I remember that as being like Nicholas Winding Refn levels of, of like visual uh, color saturation. Am I am I wrong in that? Yeah, a little bit. A little wrong. <laughs> it's not it's not it, it, i mean it's 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 got some striking visuals but not necessarily in the, in the realm of color so much as framing and mm. in a split screen and the usual diploma tricks hmm. so what about you tasha 
Um, speaking of bat poop crazy movies, when we were first uh, when we first came up with the idea of doing Finding Dory, my husband said, "Oh, you should pair it with this movie, The Swimmer," um, which apparently <laughs> none of us had seen, and I had never even heard of. But we happened to have it at home. So we pulled it out and watched it together. Uh, This is a 1968 movie starring Burt Lancaster. It was directed by Frank Perry, who uh, also directed Mommy Dearest. It's an adaptation of a very short John Cheever short story. And it is a movie about a man in the 60s who realizes that all of his friends have swimming pools and that technically if he walks from pool to pool, he can swim his way home. And it becomes this sort of psychodrama about it like as though he were a salmon returning to his place of birth as mm-hmm. he travels across the landscape of all of these people who uh, have very let's just say very different relationships to him um, basically encountering them in order to use their pools on this really chaotic quest to swim his way home um, as the the film unfolds it becomes this really strange kind of psychedelic 60s drama there's a little bit of um, of the party in there. There's a little bit of uh, kind of melodrama. There's a little bit of, I don't know, splendor in the grass. It's all kinds of different films wrapped up into one. And it's very, very strange, but it's so compelling. And it's so deeply, deeply weird. The closer he gets to home, the more this film starts to have things in common with Memento and Finding Dory, the more it becomes clear that there are matters of memory and identity and choice and self-creation going on, and the less the world cooperates with the protagonist's attempts to recreate himself. It's a very strange film. It's incredibly memorable. Burt Lancaster uh, gives a really incredible performance as a man who's mostly nude and dripping wet for the entirety of this film. Uh, 1968's The Swimmer. Can't oh, recommend always, it enough. I've always meant to see that and I've never done so. Oh, Scott, I, I want so badly to know what you would think <laughs> of this movie. I should, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> it's so strange. Keith, what do you have for us? I guess I've kind of got a movie that I've always meant to see and then, then never did, and then I did, uh, which was uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which I, I knew for years as the inspiration for uh, the Warren Beatty film, Heaven Can, Can Wait, which is a film I, I, I like a lot. And the original is, is, is if anything, even, even, even better. It's a delightful 1941 film uh, starring Robert Montgomery as, as a boxer who also enjoys piloting planes and dies in a plane crash and is, is taken to the afterlife by a supernatural, um, um, sort of supernatural um, function, functionaries, I guess is a, is a way to put it, um, except he's, he's, di- he's taken too soon. He would have survived the crash. And so Claude reigns as they're never called angels. They're never even referred to as heaven or the afterlife and nothing explicitly religion explicitly uh, laid out but Claude Rains is a, a another a high-ranking afterlife person who puts him back into the body of a millionaire who's just been murdered and there's sort of a delightful uh, you know, comedy and romance but um, I don't know it's 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 a very sweet clever movie Montgomery is a lot of fun in it uh, as is James Gleason as, as, his, as his trainer and the only person that knows that he's actually the boxer in another in another body but you know, it, it was part of, of a run of supernatural comedies. You know, it's not as good as uh, Powell and Pressburger's uh, Stairway to Heaven or A Matter of Life and Death, which really takes this 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 notion of of returning from the beyond to to live on Earth uh, to to really profound levels. But it's a it's a lot of fun and and, and a kind of a comforting vision of the afterlife, where where you know things may not always work out on 
earth but there is there is a, a larger larger forces at work that that are really do kind of want to look after our happiness and and it's new out on blu-ray from criterion so it's it's filled out with some some nice extras and it looks great and and uh uh that's uh that's why i would recommend uh, here comes mr jordan yeah, I, I watched that uh, quite a while ago, and it it's sort of this weird part and parcel. Of it. it seems like there was just this whole period, and you named a bunch of them, mm-hmm. of these movies about <laughs> about the afterlife as a, just kind of a very practical place where very benevolent forces uh, get fairly involved in like often bringing people back to life to uh, to further explore things. Like, what was what was going on back then with people in the afterlife? I mean, part of it, I think, is is this film was very was quite successful, and 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 also this film came out uh, in 1941 on the on the eve of of World War II, and and uh, sort of a a sense that people who had been through you know so many people had been through one World War already, and 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 there was another one looming, and kind of getting comfortable with the idea of losing people. I mean, I mean it's it's a lighthearted film, but it's also a, a film about you know, the people that, that we lose and what, what happens to them. And it's, 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 uh, um, nicely balanced that way. If you want to go down the whole rabbit hole, uh, of, of confusion and, 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 uh, talk, explore the fact that this is based on a play called heaven can wait. And that title was not used because there's an Ernest Lubitsch movie called heaven can wait, which we made as heaven can wait. It has a sequel called down to earth when it was remade a second time with Chris rock. That film was called down to earth. But Down to Earth was itself remade as, wait for it, a film called Xanadu. (laughs) It's a very strange history. That was the most, like detailed, thoughtful, and informative answer I think I've ever gotten to a flippant question. Thank you for that. (laughs) Sure. That was really impressive. That's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out July 12th and 14th. Uh, Keith, you want to tell us what we have lined up? Next week, we're going to talk about a pair of films that offer lurid takes on the theme of female rivalry. A bunch of us saw Nicholas Winding Refn's new The Neon Demon, in which Elle Fanning stars as a teen model alone in the wilds of the fashion industry in Los Angeles. We're pairing that film with Dario Argento's 1977 shocker, Suspiria, which tells a similar and equally over-the-top story within the confines of an exclusive ballet school with a secret. I'm looking forward to that one. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Memento, Finding Dory, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? I'm at uprocks.com, where I'm uh, uh, heading up film and uh, television coverage and uh, writing when I can. Oh, and and on Twitter at kphips3000. You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, uh, and you can find my work at NPR, Variety, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, uh, Vulture, uh, Village Voice, Uprocks, and I'm the uh, uh, editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings. Genevieve? And I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha, how about you? Uh, you can find me writing about film at TheVerge.com. Uh, most recently, you can find uh, some stuff that I wrote at NPR for the Read, Watch, Binge uh, recommendation program. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at, at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. 
Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. <laughs>